Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. So you can kind of think as you were engaging this reading, like, um, you know, this isn't just like a fortune cookie that's like randomly out from somewhere, but this is part of a larger text. And this text, Ezra in particular, is telling the history of people who were from Jerusalem, got kicked out, and then they made their way back and just kind of what unfolded from there. I also want to give uh, a little bit of a content warning that this uh, particular reading has to do with the hardest part of Ezra. Um, there is some really cringy moments in uh, Ezra around interracial marriage. And so, uh, so this theme is going to talk about that. And I just want to remind you that um, if you are ever feeling triggered at New City, not just today, but ever, um, there are things that you can do to help advocate and take care of yourself. We don't want you to just shut down and lock it down, like, don't feel feelings. Instead, we invite you to um, get a drink of water in the hallway. You can uh, pace in the back if you would like, look outside and get support from nature, or call on someone who can be supportive of you. And I know sometimes when you're like in church, it can feel really awkward to have to like stand up because it's like, oh, what if everyone's seeing me or whatever? But can we just all collectively agree that if someone is feeling triggered and they got to do something, then that's like the right thing to do. So um, yes, yes, yes. So I'm going to read through this and then I'm going to invite you to uh, name a word or phrase that sticks out to you. And those of you joining on the live stream can join us in the chat. Then Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, you have been unfaithful by marrying foreign women and adding to Israel's guilt. But now make a confession to the Lord God of your ancestors and do his will. Separate yourself from the neighboring peoples and from foreign wives. The whole assembly shouted in reply, yes, we must do as you have said, but there are many people and it's a rainy season. We can't continue to stand outside, nor can this task be completed in a day or two because many of us have sinned in this matter. Uh, let our leaders represent the entire assembly. Let all in our town who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, along with the elders and judges of every town, until God's great anger at us on account of this matter can be averted. Only Jonathan, Asahel's son, and Yehiazah, uh, Yazeah, Tikva's son, opposed this. Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them. Huh. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if there was a word or phrase that stuck out to you, I would love to uh, hear that. Oppose this. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm pulling up, by the way, uh, live stream folks, I'm pulling up the chat from the live stream so that we can see your input too. Supported. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Appointed. God's great anger. Yeah, unfaithful. Okay. We're seeing some somatic skills coming out as people are uh, bringing loving energy to their chest and doing a little bilateral stimulation. That's good. This is part of the discipleship. Yeah, so I wanted to embed this within the sermon because um, uh, for some folks, this is a pretty uh, triggering theme. And so I just want to name that, like, uh, uh, 
you know, whether this is triggering for you because of the concept of like blood purity, which is like very troubling, or the concept of uh, just a very angry God, like, which is also deeply disturbing, you know, like just, just be very kind to yourself. We're going to get into this. But the reason why I wanted to preach on this is because like the goal is not just that you come and hear like a little mini teaching on scripture every week. The goal is that you can like build a faith life yourself. And if you pick up a Bible and you read through Ezra and you're like, wow, we did a sermon series on Ezra. I'm sure nothing terrible is going to happen here. And then you open to chapter 10 and it's this, then like I as a pastor want you to be equipped to be able to face this. So, um, so yeah, uh, that, that's why we're talking about this today. We have folks in the, um, uh, uh, in the chat saying, uh, great anger stood out to me, uh, uh, foreign, what does that even mean? <laughs> okay, <laughs> listen, uh, yeah, there's, there's some complexity there. And then someone else saying, I'm, I'm harvesting strawberries. Yeah, you just stay in that strawberry patch. <laughs> you, just, you just stay. Yes, work. Um, so to approach this uh, topic, I want to cut to me on a plane uh, coming back from San Francisco. Uh, that I, w I took a trip uh, two weeks ago now, and it's like a three and a half hour flight. And so, you know, after I journaled extensively, I uh, <laughs> wanted to watch the movies and I was scrolling through. And I had seen like a lot of the kind of, you know, when you're like scrolling through and it's like, okay, I'm no longer gonna find a top tier Tyler movie. So like, what can I settle for <laughs> that is gonna be something that can pass the time? And, um, and so of course I watched Avengers Infinity War 2018. Okay, I know some folks are really big fans. And so I don't wanna, I don't wanna cast any shade. I just, um, it, uh, yeah. So Avengers, for those of you who don't know, uh, Avengers Infinity War, uh, was like a really, 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 really big movie in 2018. Hear this. Uh, it grossed $2 trillion? Is it when it's that far out? It's trillions? Yeah, okay. Uh, worldwide, it was the highest grossing opening weekend. And also, it was just kind of gross as a movie. I, I, found, I found Avengers... Um, I mean, I thought, it, you know, nothing like deeply, deeply problematic. But like, if you're, I'm going to give you $2 trillion, like have the world be a better place after you make your movie, you know? Like, the, the main takeaway was, like, the weakness of humanity is that we have feelings, and, and the, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, no, they practiced mercy, and that's why everything was ruined. It's like, oh, I don't know if Jesus loves that. So, uh, so we're, we're, but I didn't, I didn't watch the ones before this, and I also watched the one after it, and I thought it was, like, like, deeply... So I know that this is a yet another triggering topic for the room. I just want you to use some of your bilateral stimulation. We're gonna get through this together. Um, so for those of you um, who have never uh, seen this, the, um, one of the characters is named Thanos, and Thanos's hot take is like, um, he, so th the whole thing is like, He's like, oh no, there's too many resources being consumed. I'm going to murder 
half of all living things because then we will flourish is kind of the, the Thanos premise. And, I'm, and he has like a glove that can do anything and, and including like control time and like space and all these things. And he decides that the number one strategy when you can do anything at all is to uh, snap his fingers and all of life. Okay, so that was like, that's whole uh, Thanos's whole thing. But I thought what was really interesting for those of you who have seen the movie is that they really made Thanos out not as much to be a villain, but to be an anti-hero. Anti-hero. Have any of you heard of the concept of anti-hero? The trope of anti-hero is becoming more and more popular, some cinema folks have noticed, and, and there's a lot of reasons why that might be. But the whole idea is that there is like a there are some deeply flawed actions, but maybe good intentions happening. So like it's like not just pure evil, but kind of like I see where he's coming from. And so that whole image of Thanos, the whole characterization of Thanos was like, okay, uh, we all know that there's scarce resources. And Thanos was like, I don't want to do this, but it's my duty to bring equilibrium to the universe or whatever. So it's that's the anti-hero dynamic where it's like, he's not just like, mwahaha, I'm going to get rid of half of all the people. But there's a story, there's a through line, there's a point of empathy where we as viewers can view this anti-hero and say, I don't love what you're doing, but I, I'm being invited to see where you're coming from. That's what an anti-hero is. And uh, as I open up through this scripture and I look at Ezra 10, like Ezra became an anti-hero for me in this chapter. Ezra, who previously throughout, um, uh, Ezra is a pretty short book, so it, uh, chapter 10 is the last one. And so like in the middle of Ezra, uh, uh, late Ezra, like Ezra does some cool things. Um, but then Ezra um, uh, decrees that any person in the Israelite community who has married a foreign wife would have to divorce that wife because it makes God angry. And I just want to be clear, like in this text, there is no sentence that says, God says, colon, divorce your foreign wife. This was just like a project that Ezra took on himself based off of previous texts. And it also seems like the leaders of the families of these tribes were deeply influential in Ezra deciding to get rid of some of these families that had developed in this nation. And I just want to be super clear that I wouldn't exist if Ezra was snapping his fingers because I myself am the product of interracial marriage. I myself am someone who's like one family from Hong Kong, one family from Germany, Norway, uh, Ireland, that kind of energy. And then they come together and then, uh, and then uh, uh, my parents met at a disco dancing class at the University of Minnesota because I owe my life to disco. I think that's, that's there. It's there. And like my family was like criticized with a very similar logic as what Ezra was criticizing people for, you know, um, and also from both sides, right? Like, so, uh, you know, my family originally uh, moved out to um, originally Coon Rapids and they were uh, like one person like wrote them a death note, like a like a magazine clipping out the letters, kind of like ransom note kind of thing, right? Okay, and so that's like, so that's interesting. And then the Chinese side of my family was like, huh, you're 
you're marrying a white woman? And like that whole thing impacted my entire family. And so like the ethos of our household was that there is a basic moral good that comes from God's children coming from different places, making relationship across difference. That's like a basic premise of what it means to be a sit. And it's a basic premise of like, that. it's a basic premise that was required for me to be alive. And so I'm reading this text and I'm like, this is messed up because foreign wives make people like me. And also like, why are we only blaming the wives in this situation when there's like, like I feel like there's a, like it takes two to tango, okay? And all of a sudden, okay, so that's, uh, that's interesting. And furthermore, um, like we read a couple chapters ago, there were people who were like Israelites, but they weren't sent out into exile in the land. And so that means that it wasn't even like foreign wives. It was people who was more indigenous to that land than the people who just came back from exile. And yet they're still seeing, okay. We're starting to pick up where this is not my favorite uh, text in the world. But uh, I'm trying to use some biblical skills, and maybe you can practice this with me, of like trying to understand where this author might have been coming from, where the inspiration for this might have been from, even if we can't totally agree with the actions. How might this anti-hero be described? And so first off, um, I just want to name that any displaced person knows how hard cultural preservation is. Anyone who uh, has been from another place and has to make a home in a new place knows just how threatening, culturally threatening, it can be to live in a new place in the best of circumstances. The uh, cherished traditions, spirituality, story, language, culture from uh, one place that deeply formed you is suddenly perpetually endangered in the other place. And in fact, like uh, Ezra was particularly intent on making sure that the spirituality of the ancestors was observed in this place. And one of the ways that they protected from that is by making sure that like families were formed that could hold these traditions together. Because unlike 21st century American spirituality, uh, ancient Jewish faith had to be practiced as community. It couldn't just be like, well, I'm this and they're that and we're like, whatever. But it's like, there's certain rituals that can only be done in community. And so there was like a certain emphasis on this. And in fact, like a lot of the Old Testament focuses on cultural preservation. Uh, the whole ritual of circumcision, uh, for one thing, is like a whole thing about culture, uh, the folks of the culture being able to uh, remain together, hold together. The, the folks of this particular inspiration being able to weather all the storms of foreign powers and domination and empire. Like this is how they held their culture together. And I guess I'm sympathetic to that because I saw my dad from China, from Hong Kong, uh, navigating how to hold on to things while also being in a setting that was rapidly discouraging him from holding on to those things. And so, like, you know, we would grow up watching kung fu movies, and uh, I didn't realize until much later that, like, the average three-year-old does not watch, like, multiple kung fu movies, like, back-to-back, -back, but that was our family, because there's a certain, like, enculturation that was there, right? And, um, and, I, and I see how even, um, I have a sister-in-law from Turkey, I have uh, many friends who are uh, from different cultures, how, like, 
there is something lost if these traditions die. There is pain and grief felt if, if things can't be held on to. And one of the ways that we can kind of hold on to it is by clustering together and creating cultures of people who can support each other in holding on to it. So, and, and beyond that, if I'm really trying to empathize with this text, like, it's not just like, oh, we should have Chinese New Year. Oh, we should, you know, we should have this festival. It's like, for the Israelites, it's like, God spoke to us particularly in a powerful way. God moved our hearts. The God of liberation that saw us in slavery saw us through, and like, that is something worth holding on to. That's something worth maintaining. That's something worth protecting. And so this was one of the ways that they engaged in protection. And I can just imagine Ezra as this person saying, like, you know, we have one chance to get this right. You know, like, we were out in exile. We got, like, this really unlikely decree from a king that's giving us permission to rebuild the temple. We got funding for once, you know, and, like, we have to get this right. So Ezra is coming in with this, like, the stakes are high kind of energy. And maybe that is what led to him making some really bad decisions. It's almost like our drive to grasp onto what is most perfect and right and pure is the thing that guarantees that we will never actually be able to abide in God's love. And so Enneagram Ones, I'm just dragging you for a little second, just one little hot second. So yeah, and so it's like, okay, so that's interesting. Like Ezra made choices. Ezra made choices. And um, I don't agree with those choices, but I do see like maybe that there is part of me that could share some of those concerns. But what happens when the majority gets it wrong? What happens when it wasn't just Ezra, but it was most of the leaders, right? Like the representatives of all of these families and tribes, uh, most of the leaders were like, yeah, we're going to uh, agree that we have to send away these foreign wives and abandon these kids. That's like what the majority said. This is actually something that's really uh, difficult for those of us who are trying to create horizontal power structures and a participatory community and co-creation for people who care about not just having one strong leader on top but are trying to create a, a, a movement of the people. This is actually kind of a troubling thing because it, it, it reminds us that sometimes most of the people can still get it wrong. And what does that mean? Because what happens, like, you know, a vote is more um, democratic than if we were to have one person decide everything. But what happens if in that vote, most of the people are choosing cruelty and hatred? What if in that one vote, most of the people are ruining the lives of many families? Many families, I would note, that weren't at the table when they decided to vote. But I do love the text that, uh, that calls out that Jonathan and Yaziah resisted, that it wasn't unanimous, that somehow there were always people who were able to see this, even when the majority said that one thing was right, and look at it and say that actually this is wrong. We cannot abide with hatred anymore. It's almost like this is the magic ratio that I see everywhere, where there's like 
2% of resistance that is prophetically naming the truth to actually like 98% of folks who are choosing the wrong decision. You know, like most of, of the history of Christianity since the 300s has been characterized by people who are dominating through empire and there's within each of those sagas of empire, there's always been some Jonathans and Yazayas saying this is not right. Colonization is not right. Slavery is not right. Uh, um, the, uh, the Crusades were not right. Nazis are not right. There was always Jonathans and Yazayas resisting when the majority got it wrong. And maybe you right now are being called to resist when the majority gets it wrong. So, uh, so of course, as I'm engaging this text, reading through some scholarship of this, um, my mind immediately goes to affirmative action. And uh, uh, for the sake of the archive, this is a week and a half from when the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action, this policy that said that colleges and universities could intentionally uh, have, uh, what is the phrase, race-informed, uh, race-conscious admissions. And so, like, uh, this is this policy that was noticing that society is not fair, that our society is, like, disproportionately cruel to some folks, and that affirmative action was there to try to correct that. And lots of folks uh, uh, were supportive of affirmative action, including a lot of folks from the military. I don't usually quote the military here, but let's, like, you know, there was a lot of folks who were like, if we get rid of uh, affirmative action, it'll impair the military's ability to maintain diverse leadership and thereby seriously undermine its institutional legitimacy and operational effectiveness. This is the military, right? Uh, there were also medical schools saying, if we don't have diverse doctors, then lives are gonna be lost. Uh, and, and affirmative action is the way that we correct for that. There were schools saying we need affirmative action for the future of teachers, for the future, you know, like any of these, for the future of social work. Like we need these tools to be able to make sure that folks have uh, a, a future that is diverse. And, uh, and the Supreme Court voted on it. And in my opinion, my, Tyler said owning his own stuff, uh, I think they got it wrong. I think the majority got it wrong. Um, and this is kind of fun for me because there's a rule, or there's a law that like, um, I'm not allowed to like preach on particular parties or candidates. Um, I can't participate in partisan um, preaching, which I am supportive of. But the Supreme Court is supposed to not be partisan. So, 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 here we go. Um, <laughs> get ready. No, so the whole idea. <laughs> that's, yeah, where it's just like, okay, so sometimes the majority gets it wrong. And then all of us have to live with the consequences. And this is the frustrating thing <laughs> that we're encountering in the book of Ezra, where it's like, well, what happens if the majority of these leads of families were actually not listening to God correctly? What do we do then? And like, it just brings up lots of questions of like, so what is the theory of change here? What are we actually supposed to do? Are we just supposed to elect one person that we think is a good person and just let them kind of do their thing? Are we supposed to have an equal democracy where folks each have like an equal weight or an equal vote? Are we supposed to have like 
uh, a power conscious democracy where like marginalized people's votes count more than other folks? Like who gets to decide that? Like lots of really serious questions. And so we can go to our faith to resource and to try to try to understand what how we might approach these kind of relatively complex themes. And the truth that I come back to again and again in the ministry of Jesus is the commitment to center marginalized voices. Uh, we see again and again, not only in Jesus, but I'm just an extra fan of Jesus, but, uh, but throughout the Bible, we see God moving towards the people who are most affected, the people who are most impacted, and the people who are most forgotten by society, and God moving kind of in a particular special way that can only be found if we listen to the margins. And the, the message is clear across um, the Old Testament and New Testament that like the folks who are the most left out by society have a certain truth about God that all of us must hear. That, like, collectively, our souls are doomed if we cannot hear how the Holy Spirit is moving on the margins of society. Uh, we see this uh, over and over again. Uh, we see Jesus' announcement of birth being announced to shepherds in the field rather than kings in palaces. We see uh, uh, the Spirit calling people to move out again and again. We hear the prophets saying, you have tread upon the poor in our society. Throughout the Bible, we have these witnesses that say, listen to the margins of society because that's where God lives. And as Christians, our task is to not only have that be a personal ethic, but a social ethic. Like, like maybe the folks who have the most to lose from affirmative action being struck down should have been able to decide if affirmative action stayed. Maybe like the folks who uh, uh, are actually partnered with same gender uh, partners should have been able to decide if there can be workplace discrimination for LGBT people. <laughs> you know, like maybe, maybe we should be involving the folks who are the most marginalized by society in order for us to be able to hear God. And I just wanna uh, close to name like, y'all, we need Jesus. <laughs> I don't, I don't, can I do this? Okay, like, I don't know uh, if you have, like, ever tried to work in politics. I don't know if you've ever tried to push things through. Ha! <laughs> Trigger warning! I don't know if you've ever tried to push for social change beyond just ideological thinking, but actually trying to work for something. But it is so hard. It is devastatingly difficult to try to push for social change. And so like I come up here saying like, I think that the court got it wrong from a place of humility, knowing just how difficult it is to push for what is right. I'm not being romantic about how hard it is for us to build an anti-racist society. And I think it's foolish to think that even affirmative action could fix all of our racial problems. Rather, we are called to follow a Jesus who doesn't give us the blueprint of everything exactly the way that it's supposed to be, but rather calls us into just one more faithful step. We need a Jesus who can show us like the next turn that we are supposed to take in our life because we don't know what the big picture is, but the God of creation, the God who made raspberries and mushrooms, the God who made it all, is guiding us towards collective liberation. 
And so our faithfulness towards Jesus is, is a, a, another way of saying I'm committing to the collective liberation of all people, trusting that if I take the next faithful step, that together we will move forward. We need to call upon the spirit of Jesus who went out to the well to meet a Samaritan woman intentionally going out of his way to engage in a cross-ethnic conversation to say, actually, lady, you are where the kingdom of God is, outside of the Holy of Holies. We need the spirit who called uh, Philip to run towards the Ethiopian eunuch on, in Acts 8. We need the spirit who says, there is a sexual minority who is dark-skinned and a foreigner, and that is where God's spirit is. Is, and so run out there as fast as, leave the temple, go to the margins of society, and that is where we will discover the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit of God to support us in this, not because we can master the big plan, but because God is calling us for one more faithful step as individuals, as a society, and as a planet. <laughs> Are you with me? Amen. Amen. <laughs>